Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While a dispute over the anti-corruption committee motion being put forward by the Conservatives could spring us into a federal election. We'll tell you all about that. The Ontario government has taken a look at ranked balloting and said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to do that at the province anymore. That's got quite a few people upset. London's deputy mayor is going to join us on the show as well to talk about a new motion about reallocating space in City Hall because of all the people working at home. And today, the leader of the Green Party of Ontario is going to be debating his private member's bill that would revoke the ability of employers to require sick notes for short-term minor illnesses. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about Ottawa because that's uh, the focus of attention, I think, today. Because we could be heading into a federal election. Yeah, I, I, I know. I know. There's a discussion about this, of course, uh, during the throne speech, and uh, the NDP and the Liberals seemed to cut a deal, uh, and the NDP supported the, the throne speech, and we thought, well, okay, that that threat's gone. But uh, it's uh, changed dramatically in the last couple of days uh, with the uh, introduction by the Conservatives of what they call the anti-corruption motion. Now, this is a motion put forward to strike a new committee, which essentially is going to be looking into uh, what they consider to be perceived uh, corruption uh, with the Wii fiasco and with government spending in general. And, uh, well, the Liberal government has reacted and essentially said, uh, you know what, if this thing passes, we're going to take that as a non-confidence vote, and uh, there's going to be an election. David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News, uh, joins us to talk about this. David, thanks so much. You had a busy day. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, no problem. It's political chicken here, David. Who's going to blink first? Well, I don't think you put it in the blink category, and and because uh, this is you're going to hear this from NDP letter NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. It's not a binary option. It's not have an election or investigate the Liberal government and the We Charity. Jagmeet Singh saying you can do both, and he says it's absurd, and that's his word that Justin Trudeau has decided to declare the creation of a parliamentary committee a confidence mode. It's it's absurd that we'd have a general election in the middle of a pan- pandemic over a parliamentary committee. So watch Singh's language today. I think he's the key. It's not his motion to create this particular committee. It's a conservative motion. And I should point out the conservatives even amended the motion to say, there's right there in black and white, by the way, this does not mean we should have an election if we create this committee. I mean, the conservatives are trying to be very explicit. So, you know, we're, we're getting into it by, by declaring a confidence vote on this creation of a parliamentary committee I mean, Trudeau's really lit a stick of dynamite, and now all the parties are sort of passing around the stick of dynamite, hoping it doesn't blow up in anybody's hands. But dynamite's dangerous things, and so are confidence votes. So, uh, you know, anything can happen here. But all three opposition parties would have to vote to create this committee. As I said, the Conservatives are going to vote to do it. The blockade, the claw, they want an election. Their, their supporters yeah. are like hot to trot here. The NDP, I think, is going to, I think, be the adult in the room and say, this is ridiculous here. What, what are we doing? To that end, though, does that mean that they, they would vote against the uh, the conservative motion? They may have to. I mean, this is one of the things I think, you know, in terms of parliamentary plumbing, they got to figure out. They could abstain, but in terms of the calculus of the House, if you add up the block votes and the conservative votes, that is just one shy of beating the Liberals. So you're really razor thin if somebody, you know, don't forget, some of this voting is going to happen basically on a Zoom call. And if somebody's connection dies or isn't there, you know, again, this is a stick of dynamite. So the NDP have to be aware of that. And uh, if they vote with the government to defeat the idea of the conservative committee, then, um, yeah, they, they, that's what they'd have to do. But they, of course, don't forget, the NDP has proposed an alternative, another kind of committee, again, to investigate the WE charity. Um, Parliament could vote on their proposal. I don't know when. It might be a week or two. But, again, this is the, the NDP's point is saying, 
we can do both here. And and the NDP also keep me, I think, they're eyeing the ball in another big way, saying, you know, the NDP did support the liberal government on some money bills, mm-hmm. one of which was a deal to say we're going to give some um, we're going to give some financial help to those with disabilities. That's important, more important than this fight over a parliamentary committee. Uh, very quickly, I know it's busy. And what time's the vote going to happen today? Three fifteen, right after question period. I know, Bill, you'll probably be tuning in. All political. You bet I will. Watch QP, and then the vote happens shortly after that. All right. Well, and we'll be watching for that. And, of course, you're reporting on this later on tonight on Global National. Uh, David, as always, thanks so much for this. Really a pleasure to have you on the show today. No problem. Cheers. Take care. David Aiken, of course, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. I'm going to continue the story uh, because it's uh, such an, an active day today. And, and as David has laid out for it, uh, these guys are going down the rabbit hole, and I'm not so sure that anybody really wants to do this. I, I believe they're sincere when they all say we don't want an election, except, as David mentioned, uh, Yves Blanchet, the, uh, the leader of the Bloc Québécois, was quite open about the fact that he said, yeah, we'll, we'll have a vote. We're okay with that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Drama at uh, Parliament Hill today, as uh, David Aiken uh, just told us a couple of minutes ago, the vote will actually happen just after 3 o'clock this afternoon. And what is going to happen? Uh, the, the government says that they may well throw us into an election if, in fact, the uh, conservative motion by this anti-corruption committee is passed. Uh, but uh, as uh, Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, tells us, uh, the people she's talked to yesterday, nobody really wants an election there. I don't think any insiders in Ottawa are really anticipating that that's going to happen right now. Um, it, it wouldn't be a particularly successful endeavor for any of the parties, but the most likely to win would be the Liberals at this point, um, simply because they are known it is a pandemic, and you know what? They have put a lot of money into the economy and pockets, um, and I've talked to plenty of Conservatives and NDPers who believe that voters would not change their vote, even if they're you know not super happy with the government, um, that they will take that over an unknown and that's really the big risk to the opposition parties if they push for an election well are they going to push for it i guess that's the big question we need to ask ourselves i want to bring john malloy into the conversation uh, john of course is a former ontario cabinet minister and a practitioner in residence at laurie's political science department and assistant professor of public ethics and the coordinator for the center for public ethics at waterloo lutheran seminary uh john with so much uh, going on today i'm glad you could join us uh, is, is 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 this trumped up drama as some people are suggesting or is, is, are these guys real about this and they're ready to walk this mile and go right into an election well i mean it's hard to it's hard to say we have had elections that have been called by accident joe clark will tell you about that in 1979 yeah. so i guess anything could happen i mean listen there's two sides to this uh, i mean on the one side the opposition is being the opposition and they want to take a look into the wee scandal and and a few other odds and ends and you know, why not? There's more of them in a minority government. They want to set up a committee that's going to uh, help them conduct those reviews. But from the government side, um, you know, the, the power of committees in minority governments, and please, you know, our listeners, your eyes may be glazing over, but, you know, people <laughs> should be aware of this. It's quite profound. Um, they can tie this government into pretzels, and the government's just saying, we've had enough. We've got more important things to do than... Uh, uh, you know, be, be, be tied into knots and, and having to produce tens of thousands of pages of documents and, and, you know, jump through hoops all day long, we'll have an election. 
Yeah, it's an interesting scenario. And, you know, having been involved in majority and minority governments, I mean, you've got to tread carefully in situations like this. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, as people I'm sure are aware, because this is a minority government, uh, the opposition parties make up the majority of all of those committees. So, I mean, if they want to slow this thing to a snail's pace, they can do that. Uh, and as you mentioned, the, the big umbrella issue here is the pandemic itself. We're heading into a second wave. Uh, there's going to be, a, I think, a lot of pressure, John, on the government to come up with some innovative programs to help deal with business and individuals. Uh, yet these guys want to keep looking in the rearview mirror and talking about what happened with we. I, I can understand how everybody's getting frustrated by this. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, it's a strange dynamic. And the minority governments are, uh, people don't understand them. You know, I... I, I was the government house leader during uh, uh, the liberal minority. And, you know, I'm still in counseling to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the one thing, and again, you know, before, before everybody's eyes glaze over the power of committees, um, it's, it's not like freedom to, of information act or, you know, something that a journalist might go for or something like that. The power of committees is phenomenal. And, you know, I, what I'm about to say, everyone says, no, Malloy doesn't know what he's talking about, but trust me, it is. If they could make a case that they needed to see Justin Trudeau's health files, health files, they could get them. If they made a case that they needed to see John Malloy's diary, they could get it. I mean, this isn't about them just getting a hold of some government documents that, you know, are nicely looked at by lawyers. They can demand anything and they can demand anyone. And in fact, there has been, you know, some legal opinions that sort of say it's even outside of the Charter of Rights. I mean, this is parliament at its most powerful and you can understand why the liberals don't want particularly i mean i'm guessing here when you know the prime minister's mother's involved the brother's involved that, that they go on these wild trips and start to pull out things that could be very personally embarrassing i mean you know people don't realize that the committees i doubt are going to ask for justin trudeau's health records or john malloy's diary but that power is there and I can see that the government doesn't want to give that, uh, you know, give them a carte blanche to go on this huge fishing trip. The flip side, of course, is, you know, well, that's their job. They're the opposition. And the people of Canada decided not to give the Liberals a, a majority. Let me ask you, again, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds about all this uh, inside baseball stuff, but the, the idea of actually proposing this anti-corruption, the name itself implies that there is corruption, and we're yeah. going to root it out. Uh, but are there not existing committees that could do this? There's an ethics committee. There's a number of different committees that already exist where, that, as you say, the opposition parties already have the majority on those councils. Is that not a vehicle they could use? In other words, are they, are they really just poking the bear by saying corruption? That's, a, that's, a, that's a, an action word. I can understand how any government of any political stripe would get upset by that yeah i mean it's uh it's uh, uh my understanding is it's a little bit uh, uh sort of the truth somewhere in the middle there are existing committees uh the liberals uh god bless them have been doing a great job in filibustering and uh, making sure that the, the the committees really can't get down to this type of work and this sort of you know this is the rolls royce opposition committee this is one where they're going to have the chair and the rules of the committee are going to allow them to uh, really move very quickly and uh, have a you know be a lot more nimble than the government committees. However, at the end of the day, what you say is true. The opposition have a, a majority on all these committees. Uh, they could be using them to uh, to move forward, but this would just give them uh, you know a lot more agility. I mean, you, we've we've seen some of these 
I forget which committee it was that, uh, you know, they, they sat for hours and hours and people were reading crazy things into the record and, uh, you know, it went on till uh, uh, evening and they had to suspend it. And, you know, it, they, want, they want a free path forward. That's what the opposition wants. So what's going on right now? You were the, as you mentioned, the House leader during a minority government. I remember having a discussion years ago with uh, Tony Valeri when he was the government House leader for Paul Martin's government in a minority government, and uh, there was a similar situation. I think it was a budget vote, actually. So, I mean, this was technically, you know, the government could fall. And it was basically the 11th hour that they finally cut some sort of a deal to, to, to make sure that that didn't happen. Are there negotiations going on right now, or is everybody just kind of sticking and, and digging their heels in? Well, I mean, there could be negotiations. I suspect the uh, the phone lines between the Liberals and the NDP are going because uh, the Conservatives and the Bloc are uh, seem dug in. So there's probably lots of behind the scenes stuff going. Um, it's interesting, you know. Uh, if I can play armchair quarterback, I think sure. if I was the Conservative House leader, I'd all of a sudden have something very important to do all morning and not be available. <laughs> Uh, and I used to play that game. Maybe I shouldn't have confessed that. I used to play that game sometimes uh, at, at Queen's Park because, you know, if you're in the government, you want to make this the opposition problem, but it's really the government's problem. Uh, you know, the government's the one who's call, uh, threatening the election. The government's the one who's not allowing a committee to go forward. And uh, uh, there is a strategy even for the NDP to just, you know, spend the morning uh, uh, tied up with very, very, very important business that you can't be reached. That said, I suspect that the uh, the real deal is going on between the Liberals and the NDP. The other wild card, and sorry to get in the weeds, is there are the Greens and Independent members who could, if the NDP you know suddenly get the flu or or actually openly don't vote, I mean I formally abstain, um, they could uh, they could help the government get over get over the uh, finish line on this one. But again, are they are they going to ask for for something? So I suspect there's all sorts of phone calls going back and forth. But there also may be some strategic. I'm in a very important meeting and can't be disturbed happening as well. Didn't uh, the federal liberals actually escape that years ago? What was it? The independent guy in B Chuck Cabinet, I think it was. That yeah, actually cast I, I the deciding he vote. Passed away. Yeah, he did. Just passed away not too long after that. But he was he was the key vote. He was the, the vote that actually kept the government alive. So you're right. The independents and, and the Greens could play a role in this too. So and then, it's, it's, and then of course, if you really want to take a walk down memory lane, Belinda Stronach, who showed yeah. up as a liberal. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that same government, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, amazing. Uh, John, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time. Stay well, and I know we'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you. Take care. John Malloy, of course, former Ontario cabinet minister and former house leader, of course, at that particular time. And, I, yeah, i got to believe that the cell phones are just buzzing in Ottawa right now trying to figure a deal out. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good after surprise from Queen's Park yesterday. Uh, the government uh, introduced legislation, and we knew this was coming, uh, basically to make it harder for uh, people to uh, sue long-term care facilities if they have some concerns about the way that their loved ones are being cared for. But also... There was a clause in this bill that basically says that uh, ranked balloting is no longer going to be allowed in Ontario. Where'd that come from? Well, Global's Darren Balland has this report. A spokesman for Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark says municipalities should not experiment with changes to municipal votes during the pandemic. Officials in Toronto had contemplated introducing a ranked ballot system for its 2022 municipal election, but City Mayor John Tory says instead that process will begin in 2026. The province says the new measures will keep the electoral process consistent across municipal, provincial and federal elections. The change is part of a bill introduced in the legislature that largely focuses on measures to provide liability 
liability protection from COVID-19 exposure to workers, businesses, and charities. Darren Boland, Global News. Interesting twist on that. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Kate Graham, who is a, of course, political science uh, professor at uh, the Department of Political Science at Western University in London. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Great to be on. It's, it, it kind of reminds me of the old omnibus bills that uh, the Harper government used to throw in there. There'd be, you know, a kind of a... <laughs> This, this, that, and that, all sorts of things in there. I mean, we understood because they told us they were going to look at this idea about, you know, making it more difficult to sue. But why, where all of a sudden changes to the municipal act? Where's that coming from? Well, this this was, uh, I know it was described earlier as a surprise, but it did come out of nowhere. You know, I'm not aware of anyone who's asked for this. Uh, it's local government week in Ontario right now. Twitter and text messages were all a flutter last night. I, I've yet to hear of a single local official who was asked about this or even had a heads up that this is coming. So it's, it's a really uh, unfortunate step that will limit the ability of communities to decide how they want their elections to be run. Well, especially the justification that the uh, municipal affairs minister gave, uh, that they don't want to have people f- fooling around or fidgeting or whatever the, the verb was that they used here, uh, with the electoral processes during the pandemic. I'm having trouble connecting those dots. I, I agree. I, I mean, the whole idea is just ridiculous, the idea that it's fidgeting or, um, you know, this is being done willy-nilly. There are communities that have spent huge resources on really deliberately thinking about what their process should look like. You know, in communities like Cambridge and Kingston, where they've had referendums, they have gone through the effort of communicating with the public, talking about how they want their elections to be run, uh, and they have mandates to move forward with ranked balloting, and now that's just being pulled out from underneath them. I live in London. Uh, In 2018, we did have a ranked ballot election, and it was something that the Mm -hmm. community chose. It was something that a majority of council ran on and were elected. Uh, The election came and went, and I think, you know, I certainly feel, and I think most people would agree, that it went pretty well. And so now to have to go back and, you know, do a whole other communications exercise to, you know, remind people of how it's going to work in the future, it is a huge waste of time and resources. Uh, and we're in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, this is just not a priority right now. It's interesting, and because all eyes were on London. Just to remind our listeners, it was a few years ago that it was uh, the Wynn government, actually, that yeah. uh, that put a, a, a twist to the Municipal Act that said, look, if you guys want to try something different, rank balloting or, or any any other, uh, go ahead, knock yourselves out. And not too many people took them up on it because the excuse always was, well, it's way too complicated. You know, people would never figure this out. So that's why we were watching with great interest to see what happened with London. And the, the message we got from it, it's not that difficult, gang, and then it worked pretty well. No, I mean, most people, you know, the campaign slogan here in London was, it's as easy as one, two, three. You know, if someone wanted to just go in and rank one candidate, they still had that option. They could still do that. Sure. Um, But for people who liked more than one candidate, they could go in and express their preferences. And so as a result, you know, we have councillors who, you know, were elected now with a much fuller mandate, even if they weren't the first uh, choice or the second choice. You know, we have a council that uh, includes people who have a majority of support in their own ward, and that's really important. And for London to not be able to continue with that system because of another move of Queen's Park knows best, one size fits all, uh, it, it is a really unfortunate step backwards for our democracy. Well, and you mentioned a couple of other communities that are entertaining this idea right now. Uh, 
As a matter of fact, the city of Burlington just passed a motion a couple of weeks ago uh, to look into this for the next municipal election, which is about two years away, we should remind people. Uh, but so was Toronto. And, and I'm wondering, yeah. Professor, if this is the same situation as we saw in the early days of the Ford administration, uh, which was Toronto-centric, and they wanted to reduce the size of council uh, arbitrarily. And, uh, and they, they were talking about doing it to other communities as well. They kind of backed off from that a little bit later on. But do you figure that maybe the idea that Toronto is thinking of doing this was maybe part of the motivation for the government to move so quickly on it? Uh, I mean, lots of people are speculating that. And I think what we are seeing is a pattern here where, you know, we either believe that local governments are our government or we don't. We either respect local democracy or we don't. And moves like what happened during the Toronto election uh, and this little surprise yesterday, they are a clear sign that this provincial government does not respect local democracy, doesn't respect local governments, and doesn't believe that communities should be able to, to make choices on their own. Instead, it's a one-size-fits-all, Queen's Park knows best approach. And as I said, I, I think it's, you know, this is about more than just do you believe in ranked ballots or not. It's about the ability to make that choice and a belief that local governments should have that power. And so for anyone who cares about local democracy or wanting people to have a say in the place where they live, uh, they should be really worried about this move yesterday by the Ford government. Well, just by extension again, I don't understand. You know, they, they say they wanted to be consistent across the province. Why? I mean, what's, what's well, the difference? If, 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 you use, if you use rank balloting in London and in, in, you know, and in, and in Kitchener, it's, it's first past the post. So what? It, it's, so, it's, it's, you know, what, what business is of Queen's Park? And this idea that we'd have consistency between levels of government, I mean, local elections don't include political parties. It's a totally different system of government. Uh, so, you know, trying to create some consistency is, uh, it's just, it's bizarre. It's absurd. Uh, there's no consistency now. The message from, um, from Queen's Park yesterday was also about predictability. Well, the reason that, you know, people who support ranked ballots uh, uh, believe that it's a better system, myself included, is because it makes it harder for incumbents to keep winning. You know, first past the post protects the status quo. So I don't want predictable elections. I don't want the same people to always keep winning. Uh, I think we need elections that are fair and open and democratic. And I believe we need local governments to be able to make the choice about what that should look like in their own community. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about that, and I'm glad you brought that up, uh, because there's a lot of, uh, of concern here in the city of Hamilton, I can tell you, because uh, the, of the... the people on council and I don't want to get into you know their, their records or anything but a number of them have been been city councilors for over 20 years there's a handful of them that are 20 plus years uh, and you'd like to think that in politics there's going to be some sort of a turnover but as you, as you say with first past the post the power of incumbency especially in municipal elections is overwhelming and and I, that was always I thought one of the big ar arguments in favor of something like rank balloting uh, because it does give somebody else a chance and uh, they can get fresh blood and fresh ideas. Yeah, exactly. No, the, the power of name recognition, especially at the local level, it gives incumbents a huge advantage. And one of the things that we saw in London in 2018, you know, we had the first black woman elected to London City Council. And she's been very vocal about that she wouldn't have even run in that election if it wasn't for ranked ballots. You know, the promise of a more uh, friendly campaign, the ability to build support between candidates, it was a motivating factor for her to run. Uh, she ran against seven older white uh, men, many of whom had uh, arguably larger name recognition than she did, and she won. And she's made a phenomenal uh, impact on London City Council. She's, she's a, you know, just a great uh, part of the leadership of the city now and wouldn't be there if London hadn't gone with Frank Ballas. 
So once again, to take away the ability of London to to have that system and be able to um, put measures in place to see new faces on city council, it is a big step back. Well, simply because of the way the system is is organized now, as you say, there's the power of incumbency. Uh, Incumbents invariably are usually able to raise a lot more money uh, than somebody who's a challenger because, as you say, they've got that recognition, and and usually there's a track record there. They say, yeah, well, okay, if we want to get anything done, we better make sure that so-and-so gets back in there. Uh, It's a a much different system, and it seems to be uh, the ranked balloting, a a more popular system than than some of the other alternatives. You know, there's proportional representation, which uh, was floated around. Remember, we did have a referendum here in Ontario about this some years ago about changing the yep. system of voting and it was defeated but boy there's a, a lot of information and misinformation that was uh, floating around back then I don't know if people actually made informed decisions uh, because human nature I guess professor says that we as we don't seem to like change that often we have kind of the status quo even if we don't <laughs> like the status quo the, the change is something that's new to us and unusual and that frightens a lot of people mm-hmm. yeah indeed well, we learned a lot in London in 2018, and there's an event uh, on Monday. It's called London Leads. Anyone can, could Google that and find out more. There's uh, a report that's been put out about what was learned in 2018 uh, about these changes. You know, how did people react? How many people uh, actually did vote for more than one candidate? Uh, what did it look like in terms of the effect on the number of candidates that ran the tone of the election? So for anyone who's interested in this topic, it's, uh, it's an online event at 7.30 on Monday night, again called London Leads. Uh, worth checking out if uh, you're interested in hearing what what those changes meant in the community that actually gave it a try. What was voter turnout like? Uh, I I should know the number offhand. I think it was uh, it was not significantly higher, and I think in a few uh, wards it was actually a bit lower, but. Yeah, I don't know that I'm offhand. I should. Because that's that's one of the concerns, obviously, when you're having this debate. Uh, because uh, one of the selling points has always been, well, it's it's going to get more people engaged in the electoral process, at least at the municipal level, anyway. But uh, as you say, I've I've heard mixed results on it too. I think there's just a certain a public apathy about municipal elections for some reason, which I've always found astounding. I mean, it's the level of government that has the most direct impact on our lives, and it's the the one that we pay the least attention to when it comes to voting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of research on what drives turnout, and uh, generally it's understood to be that it's, it's candidates and issues that drive turnout. You know, if people are really angry, they're very motivated to go to the polls. If there's a big issue that's galvanized a lot of support or opposition, that will drive people out to the polls. Uh, making changes to the voting system where you can either vote for one candidate when you get into that ballot box or three candidates, I'm not sure that's going to be, uh, you know, enough of a difference to to you know, really see the turnout numbers change. What it does do, though, is it leads to a different kind of campaign and hopefully uh, a different slate of people stepping forward to run. Well, the other element to this, too, and I wanted to know if, if you saw evidence of this during the, the last campaign in London, is uh, it makes for a, a, a much more tame uh, election campaign itself. In other words, you don't usually heap mud at people because you know, invariably you may need those people to support you at some point uh, with their yeah. ranked balloting. Yeah, we certainly saw lots of that during the campaign. So, you know, in, for example, um, you know, I was speaking earlier about the downtown ward where Ariel uh, won. There were eight candidates running, and it was in their interest to be able to work on big ideas together. Uh, they wanted the second and choice uh, support from other candidates. And so, you know, being supportive of other candidates, uh, being encouraging when a good idea came forward, uh, that was definitely evident in the tone of the campaign. And I think that's a, a really positive thing. Uh, just a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking with, uh, well, newly appointed uh, Deputy Mayor Josh Morgan uh, from London Council about this, but I want to get, run this by you, too. Where does this leave you now? I mean, with this change to the Municipal Act, uh, basically saying you can't do ranked balloting, 
with the next municipal election, does London go back to first, first past the post? Well, I mean, it would certainly look like that based on yesterday. Uh, I hope that there are still uh, avenues to be able to change this. As I said, I think it's a big mistake. Uh, it will have very real costs in communities like London and Cambridge and Kingston and others who have put a lot of resources into getting a community ready for a ranked ballot election. They will have to now uh, scrap all of that. What a waste of time and money and put it into a very different uh, communications message. And once again, I mean, I, I close on saying we are in a global pandemic right now. There are very real issues in the province of Ontario that we should be focused on. Uh, to me, this isn't one of them. Local governments are doing a great job of making the choices that make sense in their community. And to get in the way of that feels like um, not only a big waste of time, but also just a, a, we, are, we are losing sight of what the most important things are right now, which are getting us through this pandemic. Yeah, except that this would not be the first time that a government of any political stripe uh, tries to change the channel and said, look at this, uh, forget about that over there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> COVID-19 is very challenging. As a matter of fact, even the piece of legislation in which this uh, clause was included, uh, the idea that it's going to make it difficult, if not impossible, uh, for aggrieved citizens to sue long-term care facilities for what they perceive to be uh, you know, inferior care, uh, smacks a lot of, of looking after you know private operators as opposed to the, the best interests of families. I mean, that's that's a debatable point, too. But to, to throw this in here is that's kind of like throwing gasoline under the fire, isn't it? Yep, I would agree. So here we are stuck with a situation like this, and again, not a whole lot of clarity about what's happening. And I got to wonder what uh, what's happening in some of these other communities right now. Uh, now, Toronto Mayor John Tory, as I'm sure you're aware, Professor, has already said, "Okay, we won't do it in the next election, but we'll do it for the one after that." So I mean, they, they seem bent mm -hmm. and determined that they're going to go forward with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many communities are, are somewhere along this path. Uh, there are other. Uh, referendums being planned. There are communities that are, you know, just at the early stages of exploring it. But again, this is not about, you know, do you support ranked ballots or not? It's about giving communities and the people in those communities the ability to make those choices. And that's what Ford is taking away. Well, and again, that that was what I thought was the the brilliance of the the motion that was put forward by the previous government, basically saying it's your choice, guys. You know, we're not going to mandate how you vote your your elected council, your local council, and we'll give you the option to do it. And you're right. I mean, people were slow to react to this. Not too many municipalities jumped forward until London did. Uh, but others, as you say, are starting to explore it. And uh, I, I was surprised because I was talking to Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, and they were very much in favor of, of looking into this too. But I guess that gets thrown into the, the, the blue bin right now because they're not going to be able to do anything for at least another three years. Mm -hmm. well, I think we've got a long history in this province of a very parental style of you know, Queen's Park um, exercising way too much control over local governments. Uh, we saw some, some progress. Uh, in the last Liberal mandate, as you know, I, I ran as a Liberal candidate largely for that reason. We were finally seeing empowerment of local governments, and to see us moving in the opposite direction now, uh, it's just it's a really unfortunate uh, sign of the times. Well, and I guess a lot of the time, as you mentioned, because of the pandemic and some other things that are going on in our lives, a lot of us don't pay much attention to some of this legislation that's coming out and maybe don't even think about the impact, which is why I'm glad you were able to talk about this today, uh, because there is a trend here and a pattern that, uh, that I find disturbing as, as a former city councillor. Uh, uh, you know, you, yeah. you like to think that you've got some autonomy to, to run your own municipality, but things like planning decisions uh, that, that seem to be uh, being taken away from local municipalities, and uh, you know, it's top-down government and now they're telling us how we're going to vote for our elected representatives too it's a little heavy-handed exactly and in a place as big and diverse as ontario this one size fits all queen's park knows best it just doesn't make sense uh, it, it really disempowers local communities but it also holds back um, a lot of innovation from happening lots of learning from happening like 
you know, what we're able to take away from the London 2018 election. Again, I don't want to go over too many of the points here about, you know, the pros and cons about this, but I mean, especially with the ranked balloting, this is not unique to this area. This is a system that's been in place in European and Scandinavian countries for many, many years, and it seems to work quite effectively. Oh, yes, all over the world. Yeah, there are, and, it, and that's the thing with, you know, there are lots of different systems out there. And uh, when, you know, when a jurisdiction decides to implement a new system, there are lots of learnings that can come from other places. So, again, I think the event on Monday night uh, will be an awesome opportunity to learn about, you know, what happened in the London experience and what can other communities take away from that. Uh, I think it'll be a very different kind of discussion uh, now that this announcement came out yesterday. But uh, still, there was lots learned in London that I think uh, can benefit other communities. All right. One more time. Where can they find that on Monday? Uh, if you search for hashtag London Leads, uh, Twitter is uh, all over this right now. But uh, it's uh, it's being led by Dave Meslin, who's been one of the chief advocates for this for a long time in Ontario. And uh, it's a panel with, uh, there's a couple of London City Councillors, uh, Missy Hunter, uh, who's the former minister who mm-hmm. um, brought this change in in the previous Liberal government. It'll be a really interesting discussion. So take a look for hashtag London Leads and you'll find the information there. Absolutely. Uh, Professor, as always, thank you so much. Kate, it was great talking with you again today. Stay well and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. You too. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Uh, Kate Graham, of course, uh, who is a political science professor at Western University in London. And uh, so much for the uh, the ranked balloting system that uh, Burlington and a number of other communities were looking into for the next election. Not going to happen now uh, because of this edict from the provincial government. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The city of London has a new deputy mayor at uh, the last council meeting. Uh, Josh Morgan, the councillor for Ward 7, of course, the deputy mayor for the next two years. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this. Mr. Deputy Mayor, uh, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us on the program today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, this ended up being quite a lengthy discussion and debate, which I guess a lot of folks would have figured, well, this is the policy. It's a two-year term. Let's just vote on who it's going to be. I know that Mayor Holder had actually singled you out and said, this is the person I'd like to be on council. But uh, we, it kind of morphed into a debate about whether or not there should be one-year terms or two-year terms, et cetera. Were you surprised by that? Uh, I, well, I was surprised because it, didn't, it wasn't on the agenda. It came at the last minute. But, uh, you know, I certainly respect that colleagues can raise those sorts of discussions, and, and then we can have debates about them. So it was Councillor Hopkins who raised uh, two concerns, one about the, the term of deputy mayor and, and adjustments to the policy to make it from a, a two- to a one-year term, and uh, also uh, adding uh, an equity and inclusion lens into, into the selection of the deputy mayor process. Yeah, because different communities do it in different ways. In, in Hamilton, of course, that actually the deputy mayor is only in, in in that seat for a month at a time. They rotate them around and they all share different meetings. And uh, I, I kind of like the idea of some consistency in the, in the position. And and you guys, I guess, have pretty much split it right down the middle. It's it's two year, half the, of the term you have one deputy mayor, and then you, of course, in the last two years of the term are going to assume the responsibilities now. Yes, so we've, we've done it a couple of ways during my time on council. We've, we've had a deputy mayor for, for all four years, so for the, the full term of, of council, and then we've had a deputy mayor for, for one year at a time. And, and this, this balance seems to be in the middle, and I think that's appropriate. Um, I do think it takes some time to, to you know, get in the groove, and, and with the projects that you're working on, you, you, need, you need that runway to get them you know, under your feet and going, as, as you know, uh, probably more so than others. Things take take time um, in municipal governments with big bureaucracies, and so it takes time to get something done. So, you know, a two-year term allows you to have some diversity uh, of uh, people in the position, but but gives the people in the position the time to get some things done. 
Absolutely. I, I concur completely on this. One of those programs that I, I know that you're working on right now is a motion you introduced yesterday uh, about accommodation reviews. And, uh, you know, COVID has changed everything, as, as everybody knows now, Josh. And uh, even the way that, uh, that municipal governments operate, there's a lot of people working from home. Uh, and, uh, well, explain the motion. Essentially, uh, you're figuring if this is going to be the new normal, maybe it's something that, that the city could look at as, in the way of adopting a workplace uh, changes. Yeah, so, so the city governs its, its space needs across the city uh, under something called the Master Accommodation Plan in London. And, and that's just a, a fancy way of saying, here's the space we're going to need across the city, here's what we're going to lease, here's what we're going to own, and here's how we're going to distribute our staff. Uh, we're in the process of finalizing our Master Accommodation Plan, and, and my motion last night with Councillor Salias the seconder was to send it back to staff uh, for further review based on what we've learned from COVID. This this plan was developed pre-COVID, and since then we've had staff for months now in alternate work arrangements, whether that's working remotely, working from home, or working on touchdown spaces. Uh, this review will allow us to to take everything we've learned from, from that experience, uh, incorporate it into our master accommodation plan, and potentially save us, uh, save us some money on, on leasing and spacing costs. Uh, because I think we have learned through this process that, that we we can um, have some of our staff work remotely where it's appropriate. We can have some of our staff work in shared spaces uh, and touchdown spaces. And, uh, and, and you know, one of the, the good things, if there, there's not very many good things about COVID, but one of the good things is that we've been forced to learn very quickly how to do that. And, and that should be in, incorporated into our strategy. And that's what we've asked, uh, asked uh, for our staff to do now. Well, we've heard anecdotally that a lot of uh, private sector uh, entities are doing this right now, too, in, in a way, as you say, of saving money. The knock against it, Josh, and I know that, that there's always been this debate about, you know, should everybody be physically in that building? Uh, they said, look, if they work from home, they're not going to be as productive. You know, they're going to slack off. But uh, I think what we found in, in just about every entity here, private and public sector, that's not the case. Uh, as a matter of fact, many of people are suggesting that productivity actually has increased significantly. Uh, people like the idea of, of working out of the house or in whatever circumstance it's going to be so why not you know at least go down that road and continue that yeah well and what we have now is we have the experience of our staff who have gone through this process and so all of those pros and cons uh, we can engage with them to see what was working what wasn't and and how we can make the most appropriate accommodation of uh, of remote work uh, it, it will be different for different divisions if you think about you know an inspector or a bylaw officer who's going out in in the field a lot well, eventually they need to write reports and, and respond to them. Do they need a, a full office in a city hall to do that sort of work? Like, a- absolutely not. But do they need some space to, to touch down and, and write the reports and, and finalize that work? Uh, probably. So we'll have the opportunity now to, to really dig into what's appropriate. And uh, our staff said it, it'll be about a six-month six process. And they anticipate coming back with a revised uh, accommodation plan that, that allows us to, to take advantages of what we learned. And that's really what it's about. Um, again, not too many good things coming out of COVID, but here's an opportunity to take something that you, you've been forced to learn and, uh, and make some really positive use of it. For the people that are working uh, out, outside remotely these days, uh, how difficult has it been to, to make sure that they have uh, access to all the, the support services that they would ordinarily have in that physical office space, the administrative assistance, uh, uh, support services from other departments, et cetera? Is, is, is that working out nicely? Yeah, it is, but it, it took an adjustment. And so if you think about it, that like the, even on the back end, all of the IT infrastructure that's supported, yeah. you know, allowing for the networks to be accessible remotely, uh, making sure that the proper security is there, 
uh, ensuring uh, people have access to the technology to participate in digital meetings, uh, that, that that functions properly. Uh, I think over time we've built a number of processes and it has been a trial and error learning experience uh, over, over the last uh, you know number of months. But, but we've learned some stuff. We found what works and what doesn't. And I think we're in a position now to start to incorporate that work. Um, but you're absolutely right. It, it certainly hasn't been a smooth process to work through, you know, how to figure this out. And I think all of us who have had to experience this themselves um, and everybody, you know, in the private sector who's had to work remotely has has realized this is not a smooth process. But you, you start to figure it out after a period of time and you start to get the resources to help you be successful. When the uh, report is all done and uh, as this comes back to council, are you anticipating actually asking for a staff recommendation on what to do next? Yeah, our staff are going to come forward with a modified master accommodation plan that will incorporate this. Um, and our, our, our current master accommodation plan in, in contemplates building a whole new city hall to meet our space needs. So that is a significant investment. Um, it, being able to adjust this will, will change the needs of our footprint across the city and could potentially you know, open up new opportunities and, and alternatives to that, that sort of expensive venture. If that happens, though, and let's let's uh, assume that council accepts a recommendation where 20, 25, 30 percent of the workforce, whatever, is going to be working remotely, uh, do you still need the new building? Uh, I don't know. That's that's a result of the review. Potentially not. But but we we also pay about three million dollars in in leasing space across mm-hmm. the city, and so at the end of the day, the master accommodation plan has to find the most efficient use of taxpayer dollars to to deploy our workforce. Uh, what that looks like, how many buildings we own, how many buildings we lease, is is all about the balance in the plan, and, and staff will present that back to us, and then these are the types of issues we have to debate. Um, anybody who you know owns a building knows that aging infrastructure does get costly. Uh, it doesn't last forever, but uh, but a new building is a very expensive capital outlay to build, and, build. and uh, you know you have to do that at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way and, and with the appropriate foresight. So I certainly wouldn't uh, put anything on the table at this point, but I wouldn't take anything off because I like to be genuine in, in the review that's being conducted and, and enter it with an open mind. But potentially, you know, we could save a, a lot of money in, in this process. Well, it's it's a great idea and a great concept, and and I'm glad to see you doing this. I'd like to think that all municipalities are going to reevaluate what's going on uh, in light of what's happened and, and, and continuing to happen. We don't know even how long this is going to go on for, so look forward to that report. Uh, Josh, uh, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you today. Yeah, look forward to it uh, next Thank time you. we talk. Yeah, You betcha. Deputy Mayor Josh Morgan, of course, and also Ward 7 Councillor on London City Council. Glad you're with us today. The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFBL and 900 CHML. Now, today at Queen's Park, uh, the leader of the Green Party of Ontario is going to be debating his private member's bill that would revoke the ability of employers to require sick notes for short-term minor illnesses. But we've had a lot of that discussion uh, because of COVID-19 and some of the illnesses that have been going around. Mike Schreiner, of course, is the uh, Ontario Green Party leader and the MPP for Guelph, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Mike, it's been a while. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, Bill, I'm doing great. I hope you're uh, doing fine as well. And it's always, always fun to be on the show with you, and uh, we'll have to do it more often. Well, I, let's talk about what you're going to be talking about today, because I think this is very relevant and uh, very germane to what's happening now because of COVID and, and a, a number of different things that are on people's minds these days. Yeah, Bill, so I've put forward a, a private member's bill to permanently uh, revoke uh, sick notes uh, for you know minor temporary illnesses. And the bottom line for me is is that you know, we, we shouldn't require sick notes when somebody's sick anyway. I mean, you know, they should stay in bed, they should get better, they shouldn't be trekking out, potentially getting other people sick or taking up doctor's times in a doctor's office. 
uh, you know, anytime, but especially during a pandemic. And so the government in the spring did the right thing and had a temporary uh, ban on sick notes, but it expires in January. And I think we should make it permanent. And that's exactly what my bill does. Also, you don't just run this up the flagpole. You always have some discussion with uh, with some of your fellow MPPs about this. Do you get the sense that the government is supportive of this idea? I mean, as you say, they they already started with the interim measure. Yeah, I think I'm I'm hoping for all party support. Uh, you know, nobody's given me any guarantees yet, but I've certainly had supportive comments uh, from members of all parties in the legislature. But built more importantly, I'm getting supportive comments from people across the political spectrum outside the legislature. So labor organizations and unions have been supportive of it. Business organizations and employers have been supportive of it. And probably most importantly, healthcare professionals have been supportive as well. You know, I've had so many doctors reach out to me and say that it's just a waste of their time, uh, you know, in the best of times, to be having to issue sick notes for somebody to be able to, you know, stay home and rest, which is what they should be doing. But during a pandemic, it makes absolutely no sense. Well, I've heard the same reaction uh, from physicians I've talked to that uh, that it's it's an inconvenience. First of all, you don't want people coming into the office, but you know, as, as you say, stay home and and try to isolate as much as you can, especially if you're feeling ill. But there's also a kind of a sense of you know, like you don't believe me that I'm really sick. Is that what you're telling me? I mean, that that, that always smacked of, of you know this 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 thing that you you got to feel guilty about the fact that you you don't think you're well enough to go to work or that you're infectious and you shouldn't be going to work. I mean, why should there have to be an explanation from your doctor for that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we should be showing respect for workers, and one of the ways we can show respect for workers is to trust them. <laughs> when you know your employee calls in and they're sick, you know they're probably sick, and they probably should just stay home, rest, get better, and they'll be back to work sooner. And I can tell you as a longtime small business owner, you know, we always trusted our employees. And if you don't trust your employees and you don't respect the people who work for you, then I think you have some other HR issues going on that you should probably address in other ways than through sick notes. So what's the process now for, for those who may not understand the legislative process? You, you, you inter- is, This is the day you introduced the bill, is it not? Yes, yeah, so I introduced the bill um, a month or two ago. Okay. Today's the day it's actually debated. So yeah. every member of the legislature uh, who's not in cabinet has an opportunity uh, on their allotted day, and we draw dates for it, so it's all through a random draw. Today's my day, and so I get to put forward the bill for debate. If it passes today, it will have passed second reading. It's already passed first reading when it was introduced. At second reading, it goes to committee, and then you know the committee hears it, and hopefully it comes out of committee and comes back to the legislature for a third reading debate, and then that would be royal assent. Uh, and how long is that process going to take? Or is that really you up know, to the government? It is really up to the government house leader. My goal is to get this done uh, this fall because, as I said, the uh, temporary ban on routine sick notes expires in January. I'd like to see this permanent um, ban in place uh, before then. And so I'm really pushing hard for all party support in the legislature today. I think given the support I'm receiving from outside the legislature, I'm hoping other MPPs from all the parties are, are hearing what, what, how much widespread support there is for the bill. And then hopefully it passes today. And then, you know, I'll be putting, you know, I'll be lobbying uh, the government and especially the government house leader's office uh, to bring it forward uh, before the end of the fall sitting. Uh, what about any political hanky-panky? I mean, private members' bills don't usually uh, have much success in situations like this, although this one seems like a no-brainer, Mike. 
Well, that's what I'm hoping, Bill, is that this is a no-brainer. The fact that the government brought in the, the temporary uh, ban uh, earlier this year on uh, the first wave of the pandemic, uh, you know, it usually uh, most governments at the end of each sitting, they'll, you know, have a, a few private members' bills go through, and I'm going to be pushing hard that this is one of those private members' bills that makes it to third reading. Yeah, I mean, I can remember a couple of years ago with a, a previous government, shall we say, that uh, that killed a private member's bill, and literally two days later introduced the very same bill as a government bill and, and passed it through. So I, I'd like to think they're not going to start playing games with that. So I wish you luck this afternoon. I hope things go well for it, and hopefully we can ta be talking about this as a, a fait accompli in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, me too, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you about it today. All right. You. Good luck, Mike. Thanks again for the time. Yeah, bye for now. Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party with his private member's bill about sick notes. A good idea, too. And as you say, it's already in place. It's just temporary, and this makes it permanent. Makes all kinds of sense. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.